Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. We are here the day after General Election Day to talk results and break it down. We're joined by our Gotham Gazette City reporter, Summer Kershid, who was at the Bill de Blasio election night extravaganza. <laughs> um, what was it like there? What were your takeaways from the evening? Uh, it was a pretty excited crowd. Um, right before about 9.30 is when New York One called it for the mayor. The mayor hadn't shown up yet. Um, uh, started filling up hundreds of supporters, and, you know, the mayor sort of played up once he finally showed up it was it was it was raucous you know the mayor played up the historic aspect of his um being re-elected the first democrat to do so since ed koch um uh, won his third term in 1985 uh and you know uh his supporters were excited about going into his second term to build on his first time accomplishments he touted much of what he's been talking about on the campaign trail, affordable housing, universal pre-K. Uh, and then it sort of took a turn towards sort of outward looking towards Albany, um, where he's going to need a lot of help to implement his second term priorities. And, of course, taking a dig at President Donald Trump, um, who was elected just about a year ago, and de Blasio said clearly as a rebuke to the Trumpism of, um, of this administration, he said clearly that New York values uh, will always fight back. And he also mentioned the results in New Jersey and Virginia right, where the, wave. the big governor right. races went to Democrats. Um, it was interesting. I think one of the first sort of hard policy points de Blasio made last night, if I was listening in the right timing, was to talk about subways. Yeah, which was kind of funny, given that he was you know, nudged and you know, right. for yeah. really not talking about subways until there was a crisis, and then maybe not talking about them. Right? I thought that was I thought that was an interesting place for him to go first. You know, the funny thing is, is that of course, as soon as he starts talking about Trump and he mentions this blue wave and he puts it in national context, everybody's going a little crazy about the mayor's national ambitions, and we know he's already dabbled in that unsuccessfully. And sure, that's there, but I think a lot of people I've seen, whether it's on Twitter and even on some of the shows, sort of overlooked the fact that most of the beginning of his speech was very focused on his record and his agenda for term two mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. nuts and bolts stuff. He wants to implement 3K. He's expanding his affordable housing. He talked about body cameras on police officers. So I just, one of my big takeaways today is that people need to sort of balance these things and not go too crazy about the mayor looking to run for president or whatever it is people think he might do. Well, that's true. I mean, I think one one problem with that suspicion being out there, and he certainly hasn't done a lot to tamp it down, and there's news today that they're true. considering a pack or something to, to elevate his stature, is that it will infect everything. Everything will be looked at through the lens of well, how will this position him, you know, when he... Next time he goes out to look at um, what's the groundhog in Staten Island called? Yeah. Uh, you see, it was the national vacations <laughs> right. to groundhogs around the country. Um, you know, I think that, that that's one danger we have. Right, and that's already happening with Cuomo, and he hasn't done anything to tamp that down either. So it makes sense, but I think we also... Everyone has to realize, and, and unless the mayor is dumb, he'll realize this too, that he has to keep things going well and even do better in order to have any of those ambitions, you can't, right, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't have a disaster at home and just because you won re-election and instituted pre-K in your first term run for president. So, you know, look at Chris Christie, look at, uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's plenty of examples. And it's the same thing with Cuomo. If he wants any chance at running for president, 
he's got to continue to accomplish things, clean up his record in certain ways. Was and, there talk about that in the crowd? Well, um, de Blasio's got to be a little careful because, as we all saw in his first term, when he was sort of outward-looking, trying to move to the national level, people were pretty disappointed, people were pretty angry that he wasn't focusing on issues at home. Um, and as he moves, he's already definitively said he's not running for president in 2020. Mm -hmm. he, and, you know, to go back on that... He was for forced into that during a debate by Grace Rao of mm -hmm. New York One. And, you know. Right, and to, to go back on that is not going to give people more reason to trust him. Um, as, as it is, this president, uh, this uh, mayor's... Uh, <laughs> this this mayor struggled with, um, you know, creating that connect. Um, and I don't know if that's just with the media or with, you know, political observers, but of sort of creating that connect of actual trust with the people. And so he's got to be careful about doing that in his second term, I think. I think another, there's another dimension to it, which is I think the talk about national stuff is distracting and kind of annoying. And I think it'll get very old very soon. But the other side of it is, and I was asked this somewhere else today, you know, is he is he a lame duck now? He is a lame duck now. Right. Um, and does that hurt him and that it, it, it saps his juice? Or does that mean that he is now kind of free to not have to worry about facing the city electorate again? And I guess the national stuff fits into that, right? Because most of the mayors in our lifetime have had that potential out there. You know, Bloomberg was touted as a potential national candidate at least a couple times. Um, obviously, Rudy Giuliani was thought of as a potential president and ran for Senate unsuccessfully. Koch tried it, Lindsay tried it, um, and people before, I think, also. And it, it does have the effect of sort of giving you this, this juice, right? This, this thing you have that you're not, you know, you're not stuck there. You're not kind of packing up your bags to, to send your papers to some college come December 31st, 2021. So I just wonder about how that and how his, how his margin last night, the mandate issue we talked about a couple mm -hmm. days ago, you know, whether any of any of that will affect sort of his ability to get things done in the second term. Let's talk about the specifics of the result in a minute. I want to say a couple of things first. Um, one is I think some of this national conversation stuff shows how really poorly he played it in his first term because if he hadn't gotten too big for his britches early, if he'd stayed more focused at home and then late in his first term maybe or just even now he started talking national stuff People might be saying, yeah, look at all he's accomplished in New York. He's a progressive leader. He was out there further to the left than a lot of the Democratic Party a few years ago. That That's where the Democratic Party showed that, you know, it's heading in 2016 and now beyond. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is he's set himself up here. He, you know, he's a very, he's a political animal, right? So he tried to limit his risk in term one, set everything up to win re-election. It's always about sort of the next you know, political move for someone like Bill de Blasio. And he doesn't always say what he really thinks or really wants to do, I think, because he's so calculating. And in doing that, he's set himself up for some real trouble here in the second term because of the things he's kicked down the road or promises he's made. Um, so he might have ways of wriggling himself out of some of that, like taking on the property tax system, for example. Right. But um, there's a lot that's looming over this second term. Because, I mean, there's also the key constituency that Trump won, which everyone with the Democrats were struggling to win, is the working, working, um, sort of whites, white working, like, class, white working right. class, uh, voters, which, um, who de Blasio has also alienated, um, who's struggled to win over in the city. And that's also sort of to do with his, um, positions on the police and, um, crime and safety, 
so you know, if he's looking nationally, he's gonna try to win those over as well. Mm-hmm. So let's let's yeah, let's yeah. Took, let's let's table the national conversation uh, for for a little while, and hopefully he does, and others do. But I doubt <laughs> that's gonna be the case. Uh, Jared, some other thoughts on the results? Uh, I just, I wonder about the numbers and whether, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the mandate. He, you know, Maliotakis did not do uh, substantially different from Loda, I don't think, about a, a quarter better. of the results, a little better. De Blasio did about eight points worse, which basically you chalk up to the third-party candidates, and we should mention that um, Bo Deedle, despite sharing the debate stage twice, perhaps because he shared the debate stage <laughs> twice, uh, placed behind Sal Albanese, uh, Akeem Browder, the Green Party candidate, and Mike Tolkien from Smart Cities, which is, I think, a, His own. A, interesting. And, you know, in the era, the narrative was set up that Deedle was going to be the inheritor of Trumpism, such as it was in, in New York City. And one of two things is true. Either he did, did not succeed in inheriting it, or that is a much smaller sliver of the electorate that came out to vote than than we might have expected. I don't know which it is, but... I think well, I think Molly Atakis also had a lot of inroads into those voters, She probably so. did take some of that. But um, the overall numbers, does it... Does it? I mean, it's obviously still a huge win. Um, does the fact... He pointed with such pride to his historic mandate four years ago. The fact that this is a slightly smaller, if still commanding, victory, does that matter? Well... I mean, if you if it if it ends up being only about twenty two or twenty four percent of voters showing up to the polls, um, I I think that matters. Um, last time was twenty six percent, and that was the lowest turnout in a mayoral election ever, uh, or since nineteen fifty six or something. Um, if it's lower this year, I don't think that's encouraging for democracy, at least. Um, but it doesn't give him the mandate, I think, that he thinks that he has. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think when you have not an open seat, but an incumbent running, it wouldn't surprise me at all for the turnout to be a little lower. It also wouldn't doesn't surprise me at all for his number to be a little lower because in 2013, he was a fairly unknown quantity, promising big things, running as a correction to Bloomberg, seizing on this sort of zeitgeist of the city. And um, I would expect after four years of having to make very tough decisions as mayor, pissing a lot of people off in the process, probably more than he had to, but you're always going to upset some people if you're mayor of New York City. You have to make decisions. You have to cite homeless shelters. You have to institute your reforms and your programs. Um, But after doing all that, plus the mistakes that we know he's made, whether it's being late and things like that, um, I don't think it signifies much of anything that he's a few points lower this time around it's still a strong victory and you know my stance is like yeah maybe he didn't excite that many people to come out and vote for him for your election but the people who stayed home a huge number of them weren't motivated to come out and vote against right, that could have broken either way right. Right. right right the speculative questions i guess for the day after election are could anybody help could anybody have beaten de blasio um, and could Maliatakis have done? <laughs> that was bandied about at one point. I believe. Yeah. Could, could, could Maliatakis have done better? And my feeling is that you know I think she did about as well as Nicole Maliatakis could, in the sense that she ran up. You know she worked hard. She was smart. She was articulate when she had to be. She didn't give us a lot uh, in terms of policy detail, but she obviously was running with the with the, the notion, the knowledge that she was likely to lose. And preserving her political future meant not alienating her base in Staten Island, which meant that she could only go so far into, you know, a centrist position more acceptable to voters. She couldn't really kick her 
her you know Trump Trump voting passed too far down the line because her future is probably in Staten Island. Right. Um, so I think she did about as well as she could with the money she had and in the in the, the particular trajectory she has to look at. I do think De Blasio could have been challenged by you know someone like Akeem Jeffries. I do think there are enough pockets of resentment out there whether they have, would have won. I have to say, I now reverse myself and think probably not, because you know De Blasio has proved himself to be a really, really shrewd politician, down to running a kind of boring, um, uninspiring campaign that proved incredibly successful and effective this time. So I think he could have had a slightly tougher race if someone had you know made inroads before the indictment, non-indictments came down. But I think he was going to be our mayor in January, no matter what. You know, it's funny. A lot of people dislike him. A lot of people are frustrated by his hubris. Um, he's shown it time and time again. I think there's very good reason for the fact that there's a lot of antipathy towards him, even among some people who like a lot of his programs. But the guy keeps winning. He keeps, you know, succeeding in not only elections, and he squeaked out some closer ones than these two mayoral elections in the past. He keeps winning. He's had some successes that nobody can take away from him, including pre-K and, and, and some others. Um, and so as much as it annoys people, including myself, the way he deals with the press and a variety of other things that he does, he, you know, you almost can't argue with some of the ways that he carries himself because he's successful, you know, and it's frustrating because you almost want him to have a little more comeuppance so that he's a little nicer and a, and a little less full of himself. Um, but, you know, look at these results and look at the fact that he was able to, some of it's cynical, some of it's sort of this calculating um, machine politician, giving the unions the certain, you know, the contracts and locking up the Orthodox Jewish community in certain ways and things like that, the chess pieces that he moves, but he did it all. And he's so consistently proven his detractors wrong, um, at least those from when he took office, who said that the city would go downhill, that they predicted gloom and doom on public safety, and crime is down to historic lows. Um, even during the campaign, um, Maliotakis kept invoking this idea of a, of a city sort of falling into disrepair, which just could not, I don't, I don't think, could resonate with anyone because the city is doing better than it is than it has in years and um, most experts will agree to that and I think you know talking as Ben just did about his uh, you know his, his personal style especially his style with the press you know the, the question has been raised does he need to change it at all for a second term and obviously the results suggest he doesn't but I, I would think that especially when it comes to the press I certainly hope that there is a re-examination by City Hall and also by some of the people in the press who have you know in, in certain dailies, which will go unnamed, uh, <laughs> clearly taken an oppositional stance that has become kind of a force of habit now to reevaluate and try to reset just because it, it makes for a better, you know, a better civic discourse. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, it'd be to everyone's benefit to have a slightly less acrimonious uh, and more open exchange of ideas. I think what, what, whether de Blasio just intends to be a, a successful second-term mayor or has some potential earlier uh, further ambitions a deeply acrimonious relationship with the local press um, might not kill you, but it's not going to help. He, yeah, and I don't think he's been willing to really get that or acknowledge it. And he, as I said, he keeps being successful, so why would he change? But I don't think that he sees how, forget, you know, yes, the relationship with the press, but even in addition to that, 
the personal is political. The personality is affects the agenda. You know, some people say, well, you know, people just don't really like him, but look at the stuff he's accomplished. But the fact that a lot of elected officials don't like him in his own party hurts him, hurts him in the neighborhood rezonings that he wants to do. It hurts him when he's trying to rally people to get something passed through Albany. And, and the press coverage affects how those people think of him as well. So we talk about a mandate here from the, uh, the vote. You know, people, because of the dislike for de Blasio, people are much more inclined to look at the percentage and dismiss it or say, yeah, look, that's lower. And look at all the write-ins and look at all the votes Akeem Browder got and things like that because he's got those, those issues. Mm-hmm. And, and it's cyclical. He's sort of, he's got this paternalistic looking down his nose attitude towards the press and then the press responds in kind and then he doubles down and that's what he does he he says and he said this on election day as well he said you know no changing now Uh, we're gonna keep doing what we're doing he said you know and he went straight to the gym right Uh, (laughs) which uh i mean if we don't hear have to hear about the gym for the next four years i'll be very glad i I don't think so too yeah exercise is pretty much kicked yeah i I feel like that's you know we've gotten we've gotten through the gym unless (laughs) unless he's going to the gym in the middle of the day and the homelessness situation isn't getting any better and you name the other possibilities right Right. i mean that's that's the thing that that bothers people you know right but or if if there's no noticeable improvement in his bench press (laughs) i think we should wonder whether he's really he's not going to win a third term if he doesn't get get those reps in so no surprise there that no change from de blasio at least no promise of change um what i did find surprising about an election that you know was supposed to not have any surprises was how few changes there were that all the incumbents that seemed to be in some threat, most of them escaped really without ever coming close to to losing their seats. Uh, that most of the other races for open seats, like the Mark Joni one and others, um, kind of went the way you would expect them to. Justin it, Brandon won a fairly close, it was race, a close in race in Bay Ridge, and some of the other council incumbents had close races, and they, for the most part, got over fifty percent. But I think the gap between them and their next closest competitor was wider than it might have been if there weren't multiple candidates in the race. So third parties yeah. play this you know, interesting role in the dynamic. I was surprised uh, or that it appears as though Elizabeth Crowley might have lost. I know that's not been formally declared yet. The margin in the Constitutional Convention question shocked me. Um, just Before we get to ConCon, though, Elizabeth Crowley losing would be pretty significant. I mean, there's almost always one incumbent that somehow goes down. But not one that we didn't expect. That yeah. was not one that I had on my Some people, yeah, I mean, some people mentioned don't count that one out, and you saw a lot of people like the speaker candidates, you know, spending time there and bringing mm-hmm. their teams there, and partly that's just to, like, try to make sure that she's okay. I don't mm-hmm. know how much they thought she could lose. But yeah, I mean, that's also the area of the city where um, the assembly member Markey lost uh, last year. You know, there's there's some unrest out there related to, you know, hotels being used as homeless shelters. And, and like you know, a storyline that we've talked about a lot during this year is the fate of women in the city council and the fact that there was already going to be a shrinkage of their numbers and their role because the speaker is almost certainly not going to be a woman. Um, and now they've that kind would, of yeah. unexpectedly lost... Um, another seat, a couple of the people who were threatened, Margaret Chin, survived, and so that will be a plus in that column, but one fewer woman if uh, if Crowsley does end up being on the losing side of that contest. Which puts the number at about 11 out of 51 members, right. which is tragic. Well, without Crowley, I think it... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah without yeah, Crowley, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, no, 11 right, right. down from 18 a couple of years ago. Yeah. We heard, actually, uh, we were at a press event 
yesterday for the mayor and, and we were speaking to Helen Rosenthal, who talked about the fact that the Women's Caucus has met with speaker candidates, mm -hmm. is not making an endorsement, but is asking them questions about how they're going to continue to support engagement and empowerment for women within the council, you know, things about um, identifying what are and aren't women's issues, um, stuff about, I'm sure, internal council processes. It's mm -hmm. not clear what they'll put out publicly, if anything, and when that will occur, but I thought that was interesting that that is, you know, something they are trying to put on the radar screen. It's funny because I had heard about that, and, and I had heard that they were going to make an endorsement, but that they weren't going to... It wasn't a binding vote like the Progressive Caucus had done in 2013 okay. into 14, where they said, we're going to endorse someone and we're all going to back that person for speaker. I had heard the Women's Caucus was going to say who they wanted to see be the speaker, but their members weren't committing to vote for that person. But mm -hmm. if uh, Councilmember Rosenthal said differently, then uh, she's a better source than, than my source, I guess. Um, so that that's definitely something interesting to watch. We'll get... I have other thoughts on the speaker's race uh, based on last night, but I think we'll save those. Um, you were going to mention the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, just the, the margin there surprised me. I, knew, I've, I anticipated it would be a no vote. I was surprised that it ended up being about like 80-20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was also surprised the Forest Preserve like barely won. That's kind of shocking. Just, people, yeah, I don't just think people understood really understood about. that. Um, and I'll say this. you know, Turnout, I think, was about 24% of roughly equivalent to last time. It might be off by a bit, and that's a preliminary number. But I actually was surprised that it was that high, which I know is, <laughs> I we're, we're building off a, a low bar, right. just because this race was for an incumbent running for re-election, it had been declared a dead race months ago, it was so, so quiet, even compared to last year against Joe Loda, and in the Bronx at least, I don't know about the rest of the city, at about 4.30, the skies opened up with this cold, cold rain at like prime voting time, but I went to my polling site to check and there was still a steady flow of people coming in. I guess when you get down to the 24% of people who vote in a 24% race, right. those folks are going to vote come hell or high water. Right. And I'll say we, I talk a lot about how terrible it is that turnout is low, and there's an implicit critique there of the voters who don't show up. So I want to give props to the voters who, despite an <laughs> unexciting race and kind of inclement weather, uh, showed up yesterday. More, mm -hmm. more power to them. Right. Yeah, 20, I mean, 20, if it's 24% now and it was 26% last time, that actually is a cl close raw number, right? Because the number of registered voters has increased. So I think we might have even had a few more votes this time in raw number mm -hmm. than in 2013 for mayor, which is, again, significant considering it's not an open seat. Both years, though, like you said, the race was seen as a done deal from the from the primary on, um, and this year even, even farther back than that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that's a little bit of the Trump bump, right, is people having to feel, you know, some people feeling like they have to just get out there and vote now that, um, you know, Trump made it to the White House and he obviously wasn't very popular and isn't very popular in New York City. Um, so there may be some of that. So, yeah, the Constitutional Convention, I was pretty shocked with the numbers there, although I expected it to, to not pass. Um, the funny thing is that Prop 2 passed, which is allowing for some pensions to be stripped from elected officials who are convicted of public corruption. It's like the lowest hanging fruit of 
mm-hmm. ethics reform, and right. in juxtaposition to the Constitutional Convention, I just found it so funny that you know that goes through. That's the type of thing that opponents of the ConCon were saying. Look, th- we have this on the ballot. We can get other things like this on the ballot. <laughs> right. We can incrementally change things. It's like the process to get this one on the ballot and this low, low hanging fruit. Right. It's not a, just the process, but the number of people we've had to see sort of perp walked. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. There's been a lot of ground laying for that that question. And it but takes yes. like eight years to get this. You know, it has to pass two different legislatures, and it had to be tweaked because the unions didn't like the other older version. I mean, yeah, I will say the Concon question uh, was among the most fascinating um, because of the way it split uh, people who are normally you know, friends of mine who we typically vote for exactly the same candidate, even in uh, you know Democratic primaries. Uh, people who um, you know agree on ninety-nine out of a hundred issues uh, diametrically split on the Concon, and similarly, you had Molly Atakison. Uh, de Blasio on stage saying they both were voting against, we're going to vote against it. So a very interesting kind of uh, cleavages of the of the electorate. I, that came from like these organizations that banded together, including you know people you'd never see in the same room. You're right. talking about pro-choice and pro-life, uh, pro-gun, anti-gun people all working together to sort of shut that down. It's and like the spending... buddy movie they make to save actors' careers. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. yes. right, right. And spending millions on it, outspending their opponents mm-hmm. by millions. It was it's unbelievable. So what's next here? I mean, what are our final thoughts as we are either taking stock of Election Day or looking ahead? It's it's maybe going to be a little bit of a quiet six or seven weeks until mm-hmm. the new year and the new inauguration. And then, you know, government kicks back up. But we are going to see a flurry of activity. Summer, I know you're looking at this. You know, the city council is going to pass a bunch of stuff because it's mm-hmm. the end of a term a four-year mm-hmm. term yeah what now, kind of stuff's on the radar so screen? things to look look at now there's a bunch of sort of controversial things that haven't passed and you know um there's one thing for sure is the bedford armory mm-hmm. um which is now before the council which um laurie cumbo um who's the council member from that district in crown heights has opposed it um but people who oppose the project in general have opposed it for long before laurie cumbo came on board don't trust her um, because they think she'll flip. She'll flip now that she's been reelected. Mm-hmm. She th- they think that she will vote with the administration and help uh, approve it. So that's one important thing to watch. Um, there's the Right to Know Act, um, the two police reform bills, um, which would sort of regulate um, police interactions with people in street stops uh, and consent searches. Uh, that didn't come to a vote because um, Speaker Mark Verito didn't allow it. They had an administrative agreement with the NYPD. Um, they haven't said how that's going so far, but there's been an, a push from advocates to get it passed by November 16th because that's the deadline for overriding a veto. That's the, mm. That would leave them enough time to override a veto if the mayor were to oppose it, which he does. But they're still hoping, um, this, the council sponsors are still hoping, Richie Torres and Antonio Reynoso are still hoping for like a negotiated deal with the NYPD so that they can all sort of agree to uh, legislation that will pass. Um, there's uh, other things. There's the East Harlem rezoning. Mm-hmm. Mark Verito's, um, you know, led that project for a while and she really wants to see it through before she leaves the council. Um, there's a, a few, there's a... Brad Lander wants to get the certificate of no harassment done. There's, uh, an, I, I can expect 
a lot more that I'm probably not, like, I can't remember right now, but there's mm-hmm. going to be a flurry of activity, like Ben said. Just and the speaker the, race the, hanging right, over. So, right, so let's talk right. about, I mean, how, what better to talk about the speaker's race than three men, I think. Yeah, <laughs> the race of, of virtually. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I don't know. The, I, I don't remember last time if there were this many identified candidates at this stage in the process. I know that there were close, three or yeah. four, at least. Um, I don't know, Ben, do you have any sense of sort of how that is going to break down? Or what's going to, like, what will that process look like? Is there any, I guess the question I have is, is there any transparent part of that? Or is it all going to be behind the scenes, the people politicking and and making alliances and announcing who they're voting for? Or will we just find out at the very end? It's probably going to be at least 90% behind the scenes. There's a chance here or there that people try to make some sort of some sort of big public play when things narrow down a bit. I think we will see some people drop off uh, by the end of the year, but this doesn't have to be decided until after the new year. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't look for it to be a done deal. Um, before then, it's it's voted on at the first f- full meeting of the council in January. And last year there was a lot. At uh, last time, four years ago, there was a lot of question right up until then about whether it would be Dan Gorodnik or Mark most Mark Vavrito. Um, so it's mostly behind the scenes, it's congressional reps, it's labor unions that have, you know, big sway over council members and it's the three big county democratic county committees in, uh, Queens, Brooklyn and the Bronx, all jockeying. Is it the mayor? Does he get involved in this and one? And the mayor. Yeah. His, sp- listen, you know, he's got, he's got some pull. There's no question about it. Um, but... He could also, his efforts to pull could also backfire in some ways. Because last time there was right. a feeling of some stepped on toes, right? By right. how overt he was in in backing MMV. And this time he hasn't been as um, clear about who's going to support people. Uh, Julissa Ferrer Copeland was considered his sort of favorite candidate, and she decided not to run for re-election. Um, uh, so that left eight men, all of whom sort of shared the same positions, their... Uh, politically, ideologically, they're not very different. And we're going to see that play out in a couple of public forums over the next couple of weeks. There's um, there's going to be one that's sort of criminal justice focused. There's going to be one which is good government focused. There might be an immigration focused one. And the public advocate has one. So we're going to see their positions out in public. Like you said, the Women's Caucus is going to put out that questionnaire, the questions that they've asked these speaker candidates on where they stand on women's issues. Mm-hmm. So we'll know where all the candidates stand um, and so there'll be a good base to judge them on for the next four years. Um, and 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 we're you know we talk a little bit about gender, race and ethnicity comes into play here too. The Times just did a big article on this, but it's been lots of discussion and and covered elsewhere as well. Um, are people going to be okay with a white male speaker of the city council when you have De Blasio and you have Scott Stringer and you have Cuomo and? Um, you know, there's questions around that, um, and and that might give some bounce to the candidacies of uh, Robert Cornegie of Brooklyn, Richie Torres of the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a lot of moving pieces here, and a lot of it's going to come down to some trade-offs. Um, traditionally, the Bronx and the Queens counties have been willing to pool their votes and go with a Manhattan speaker if they get top committee chair positions like finance and land use and stuff so uh, right and obviously overhanging all of this and this is again not to like put a political lens on everything but the fact that 2021 
not just the people we've talked about in citywide offices, not just the borough presidents, but the vast majority of the council and anyone who's going to be elected speaker are going to be term limited thinking about their next stop. And that will not only affect who is elected speaker, but their relationship with the mayor, you know, could be potentially very different, if only for that reason that people are going to have to figure out, you know, uh, at some point how they're going to uh, craft their future. And I would say that one thing I'm curious about is on the other side of City Hall, if we'll see many significant departures um, from agency heads or yes. key mayoral staff. Right. And there obviously have been some already. Obviously, Bill Bratton's already gone and, and Emily Lloyd and there are others. But um, folks who've been in there from the get-go or from at whatever point in the first year de Blasio got around to appointing them, um, you know, whether they will stick around. Because a lot of the policy, I mean, for instance, we did a story last week about de Blasio's environmental record, and Commissioner Garcia in sanitation is a, is a key player in that. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of the trickle-down uh, policy stuff really does depend on those agency heads more so than the mayor, or as much as the mayor, I should say. And so I wonder if any of them will, having had four years of the exhausting work of running an agency, uh, move on and, and make room for someone else. Yeah, I would expect some turnover there. Um, and, and I think what you said about that jockeying for positions in 2021 is happening, and it's not just, as you said, people focused on mayor, but it's city council members looking at the borough president positions and looking at public mm -hmm. advocate and things like that. So never-ending amount of political intrigue and right. interesting things to discuss. Talk soon. Uh, yes, the Never Ending Podcast will be back. Thanks to all our listeners for staying with us through this election season. And uh, Ben, thank you for having us at your lovely conference room so often. You bet. Yep, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys.